It's time for the Chip Race. Hello and welcome to the Chip Race brought to you by Unibet Poker. I'm your host David Lappin alongside Darrow Kearney and we are coming to you this week from the island of Malta, the venue for the latest Unibet Poker Deep Stack Open. Our guests tonight are this year's WSOP main event fourth place finisher, caravan salesman from Bridlington and Hull, John Hesp, and the poker pro who chooses to live in his van, Carlos Welsh. Ian will be bringing us all the news and results from the Unibet Poker Deep Stack Open Malta and more. And as promised, Darrow will break down that crucial Ace-10 versus Aces hand from the World Series of Poker main event final table between John Hesp and eventual winner, Scott Bloomstein. But first... Did we just witness the worst WSOP main event final table ever? Well, that was a question posed last week by, actually last week's guest, Patrick Leonard on Twitter. And it brings up a couple of issues within poker. One, was it the worst main event FT ever? Two, does it matter if it was? Three, why do pros take to Twitter to vent their frustrations at watching bad play? And four, why did I just pay 10 bucks for a Poker Go subscription when they don't even cover the final table? Well, Dara, I guess first things first, was it the worst main event final table ever? Or have we seen worse ones in recent years? Um, I, I certainly can't remember a worse one, but the, but I mean it it depends on what what the yardstick you're measuring by. In terms of entertainment value, I think it was pretty good, uh, especially as, as long as John Hess was there. That that was pretty good. So that was interesting to watch. I guess what people are focusing on mainly is the just the standard of play, and I would say it's pretty close between this one and the one that Jerry Yang won, uh, which was one of the first ones that I remember in terms of overall standard. It, it's kind of shocking because the last few. Um, Final tables have had a very, very high standard, and certainly the year Jakobsen won, that might be the best display we've ever seen, um, both from the winner and the final table as a whole. Um, but yeah, in terms of the quality of the poker, it, it, it was certainly a lot lower than we've been used to. Well, given the makeups of the fields, obviously a lot of amateurs punt their 10 grand, as do many of the pros. Those fields have an elite group in there. They've probably got a mid-tier of, of grinders, of mid-stakes grinders, and then they've got lots of recreationals. Overall, what can you expect as the makeup of a, of a main event final table, and, and how did this year's one compare to the averages? Yeah, I think the, the the difference from this year is that we had very, very few of the upper echelon pros, let's say. Um, you could argue that maybe only Ben Lamb was the absolute uh, from the top tier. In other years, we've had typically three or four of those. Um, we've had typically three or four um, you know, decent mid-level pros, grinders, and we've had maybe one amateur. Uh, I think on this final table, we just st- still only had one amateur. That seems to be the par for the course, uh, John Hesp, and he was by far the most entertaining character on the on the final table. But the, uh, the, the, the pros that got there, apart from Ben Lamb, uh, and Ben, unfortunately, was the first person out. He didn't last very long at all were sort of mid-tier pros that nobody really knew outside maybe um, fairly limited online circles. Yeah, like Antoine Saud, obviously a bit of pedigree having having got that deep before. You know, we, we did have players there who have played the game at a very high level, but it's certainly fair to say that the upper echelon pros took to Twitter during the event and in the time sort of in between the days to sort of vent their frustrations at poor play they saw, bad reshoves, general nittiness i guess being a feature too yeah obviously i understand why that rubs people up the wrong way particularly recreational players it does it does seem like uh, sour grapes from guys who have played the tournament and already busted at the same time i do kind of feel like you know pros are people too uh, <laughs> and they're people who are interested in poker and if they see something which they recognize as bad play i mean they can bite their tongue and say nothing about it but i don't see it as a major crime either to just to, to just comment on that the problem is it tends to be overwhelming in the sense that there are so many pros who are commenting at the same time it does mm. kind of look like they're all ganging up together uh, whereas in reality it's just like guys making individual comments but yeah it's probably not particularly helpful to focus on the weaker players i also think we have to bear in mind that there's a big difference this year in 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 the sense that this is the first year we haven't had november 9 recently and what's happened in previous years is the players have had four months to go off rest uh, prepare recover and come back and play very well and the players who have benefited the most from that are the weaker players uh, whether they be like let's say low level grinders or amateurs they go away they get coaching and they come back much better players this year they didn't have the chance to do that they only had a two or three day break so these guys have been playing for almost two weeks solid they're very very tired 
and it's just human nature that they're not going to be playing their best. Yeah, and I nearly think they were put at an even bigger disadvantage this year. Whatever about November 9 and being able to disappear for three months, go find yourself a top-drawer pro, give him 3% of your action for great coaching, and, and maybe come back a, a much higher standard player. They were actually given a three-day gap, which is, I think, nearly the worst thing you can do. Because if you're given a two-week gap, you can sort of decompress get some good night's sleep and then build back up to it. If it's the very next day, well, you're just in the same grind of, okay, this is a marathon and now I have to get over the last few miles. But in reality, they were given this three days and you can't unwind from it in three days. In fact, they were probably pestered by the media. They were probably getting bad night's sleep, thinking of the, maybe the millions they could win. I think you could almost be more strung out and more exhausted after that period of time that, you know, possibly we were seeing exhaustion. We spoke about that with Kenny Hallert uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Maybe these guys were even more tired than, than, than a normal WSOP main. I think they were. I think that's a very good analogy. When I, when I was a runner, I mean, the worst thing you could do in the run-up to a race was to take a short period off because it wasn't really long enough uh, to, to be active recovery. What you really had to do was you had to push through, run your race, and then take your recovery period afterwards. The idea that you could take a sort of a small break before the race just doesn't work. Um, and I think uh, we, de- we definitely saw that. Um, I can only imagine what those two or three days were like. They must have been pretty frantic. It's close enough that you're, you, know, you can't get it out of your head, so you can't unwind. Um, you're getting inundated. I saw one guy on the final table said he spent most of those two or three days trying to organize flights for his friends to get into town. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it did, it did add to the stress. If they had played true, it would have been probably better because, you know, the guys are pumped up on adrenaline. But this way, they're, they, they're pumped up on adrenaline, they make the final table, and then there's this weird two or three day quasi period where they're like waiting for something to happen. Yeah, I totally agree. Why do the pros take to Twitter to vent their frustrations of watching bad play? That was number three in my list. Um, I guess from my point of view, I think, you know, we did touch on it already, but, you know, they're, they're reacting to the hands they're seeing and they're probably giving the kind of analysis they maybe normally keep to just their own social circles or their own, you know, hand history analysis, coaching groups or whatever it is. Now they're throwing out those tidbits, explaining to people, you know, what I would have done in that situation, etc., But beyond that, it always strikes me that there's something about it where even though theoretically we should be happy to see amateurs or lower level grinders win because maybe that money will now recirculate and maybe it's good for the poker economy as a whole. It does always strike me that maybe they feel like it's good to see someone who deserves it. That means anything. Yeah, I think there's always a conflict in the pro's mind. We we kind of know on one level that the be- the best possible outcome is for a total recreational player to win, and that'll inspire other recreational players to play, and that's obviously good for everybody in the long term. But at the same time, you know, human nature is to is is to sort of uh, identify with people similar to yourself. And in poker, a lot of poker pros just feel a sense of grievance or envy or jealousy or whatever you like, and they and, and these are not noble uh, instincts, but they are human instincts to feel sort of that you know you like feel that the guy who would won it at least has deserved it has put it in, in a lot of work has put in a lot of grind down the years maybe to get to that position i i almost feel that it was kind of the worst of both worlds the outcome this year because john hesp didn't win um which would have been amazing for the game i think one of the reasons why the numbers were up this year is we did actually see a recreational player win last year key win and that sort of reignited the idea that recreational players could win i think for the previous maybe five or six years, there was a feeling that maybe a recreational player would never win the World Series main event again. And yeah. and, and, and last year disproved that. And we saw that in the, in the numbers going up and uh, greater recreational representation. So on the one hand, Hesp didn't win. But on the other hand, like the guys who did prosper were sort of like unknown grinders who would not be seen as like the absolute cream. Um, so it sort of fell between both camps. You didn't get the sort of like guy who won because he's an absolute beast and just um, beasts everything. Uh, but you also didn't get the guy who just got there and with a happy-go-lucky attitude and, and, and ended up winning the day. Absolutely. And finally, why did I pay 10 bucks for a Poker Go subscription when they didn't even cover the main event final table? I thought they were going to cover it. Okay, there was some good coverage leading up to it. Okay, a bit of a mixed bag maybe on the uh, the punditry and, and, and that kind of stuff. But overall, you know, I got to watch it as it was happening. That was quite nice. But then the main event final table arrives and it's on ESPN and I have to watch it on my computer on a crappy link, pirated and it's, you know, pop-ups and all that kind of stuff. It was no good. Yeah, I was pretty sure that the only reason you bought Poker Go was to so- so you could hear my voice because I, I did the commentary on the <laughs> seniors final table and you're obviously missing me but but 
from a serious point of view, yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing was very haphazard. From what I understand, it, Poker Go did cover the main event uh, final table, but it was only available in countries that didn't have ESPN or any um, TV coverage. Uh. Uh, so, yeah, you, you, were, you were essentially punished for living in a country that, that, that was showing it on TV, particularly if you didn't have that TV channel. It definitely affected the series, and there was a lot of negative commentary around the whole coverage. And there didn't seem to be the same buzz around this final table, I have to say, as other years. And actually, I didn't watch most of it myself because just, yeah, it just seemed to be harder to get to see it. And it's one of those things that like when it's on, you know, a free live stream, let's say, everybody can watch it and then we all talk about it and it becomes a big social thing. But when you have to jump through some hoops or pay for a subscription, then the, the whole thing sort of self-cannibalizes. Do you think going forward we're going to see Poker Go? Obviously, they're relaunching Poker After Dark soon. They're hoping that all the people who signed up for those subscriptions during the World Series will now stay with them, maybe not go through the hoop jumping you have to do to unsubscribe because they have that system in place. What do you think for the future? Do you think it's going to be a bit of a backlash or do you think maybe if they produce some good content, we might stick around? I think they're going to they're going to live or die on their content. People have pretty short memories when it comes to this stuff, even if they're pissed off now that the World Series didn't live up to their expectations. I think if they come back with you know really good uh, content, uh, then people will, will will be happy to pay because at the end of the day, ten bucks a month is not much. I mean, people pay ten bucks a month for all sorts of stuff, which is relatively minor. And if you're a poker fan, uh, it's not it's not a huge deal. But if they produce you know substandard content, essentially just the same stuff that used to be free, but now they're charging for it, um, yeah, I think they're doomed to fail in that case. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, did we just witness the worst WSOP main event final table ever? I'm not sure we did. I loved watching John Hesp right out of the gate with a few bluffs. I thought it was actually really enjoyable coverage for the most part. So pros out there, I understand your frustrations. I understand why you want to show off to everybody that you know how to play the game better than most. But uh, I think all in all, you know, maybe if we can all temper our envy, uh, you know, once a year and be happy for the guys who made it, it would be better for the for everyone involved yeah I think it would be I think a few years ago I was certainly guilty of being one of the people who was bitching on Twitter about how bad everybody was playing <laughs> now I tend to just say it to my closest friends and I keep I keep off Twitter for that, for that reason so yeah maybe like just zip it up on Twitter guys and just just boast to each other about how great you are we are joined now by Poker Pro, Poker News and 2 Plus 2 contributor, frequent poker podcast guest, although never before on this show, and self-proclaimed king of the nits, Carlos Welsh. Welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Glad to be here. I believe you've had an adventurous morning already. Uh, you got word of a free roll, is that right? Right. So I'm laying around the house um, with Dara waiting to do the podcast, and I'm just, you know, on my iPad looking at YouTube videos and sc scrolling through Twitter. And I see Kev Math retweet that there's a free roll, a 10K free roll going on for subscribers to PokerGo, who, by the way, I just finished trashing online before that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, I signed up for the service a while back, and I saw this free, free roll as a chance to you know, claw back some of my losses from that um, service. I'm driving through traffic as fast as I can, you know, cutting all the corners. And you get to the Rio. I get to the Rio uh, in about 20 minutes. And then there's the issue of finding a parking spot <laughs> and then getting to the right location to register. And it's like, you know, the angels open up the clouds for me. That There's like a parking spot right up front. And instantly I tell myself, okay, I'm going to win this tournament today. Like, there's, I've never found a parking spot that good, especially in um, such a crunch. I run in, and when I get in to the desk where you sign up, with about five minutes to spare, uh, they look up my information and they say I don't have an account. Um, because when I signed up, signed up originally, it was only for the one month. And because the service is so bad, I canceled it uh, probably like five minutes after signing up for it, and I've forgotten about that. And so the girl's like, well, if you have an iPad, which I do, you have time to sign up for it right now. So I re-signed up for the uh, Poker Girl subscription, another $10. <laughs> and, and then now I have like literally one minute to get to... Um, the registration cage to uh, get my seat, get my ticket before they close. So I'm al it's already a sweat that, like, the worst thing that can happen is for me to pay for Poker Go again, um, 
at the desk where I get the, they give you like a wristband that says you're one of the free roll attendees, but then you still have to take that to the main WSOP cage to get your seat. And I'm waiting in a little bit of a line to get the seat. And the I'm worried that I'm going to get there. And I say, I'll say, I'm sorry, it's 101. You just missed the cutoff. And I would have been livid. But I made it. I got a seat. And so I rushed to my seat. And you start with 5K. And at this point, because I'm registering so late, the blinds are at 153. I come in into the big blind. So I sit down. Post my big blind, and the under the gun player takes a 1K chip, flicks it out, and then says raise. And the dealer's like, I'm sorry, sir. Um, you have to say raise before the chip lands. That's going to just be a call. So everybody else calls around. It gets to me in the big blind, I have king, five of spades. And I check. Flop comes. 10, 10, 7, two spades. I'm thinking, here we go. <laughs> Into twelve hundred, he bets two thousand out of his out, out of his maybe six thousand stack. So he overbets the pot pretty big. And I'm sitting here with a second nut flush draw on a pair boy and a free roll. I'm thinking, you know what? I got the miracle parking spot. I learned about this at the last minute. You know, this is meant to be. This flush is definitely coming in. I know he has, like, aces or ace-king because he tried to raise, like, pretty big early. But I don't care. I go all in, and he, like, snap calls with two red fours. <laughs> so I have all the equity in the world. Don't get there. So very, very first hand of this free roll that... A, I shouldn't have even been in the free roll because there's no way that parking spot <laughs> was available. You, you do realize, Carlos, that PogerGo clearly rigged that parking space for you. I, presu I presume they also paid you off because if, if, you, if you'd been on time for this interview, Carlos would never have heard about this free roll. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I didn't even think about that angle. It was like there's so many. I went from thinking to myself, like, everything is lining up perfectly for me to win this tournament. So now I'm thinking everything lined up perfectly for me to get screwed out of another $10 by poker go. <laughs> well, Carlos, I, I've heard so many of your stories in interviews with other podcasts, and that one of whatever the opposite of serendipity is, is certainly up there with the best of them. But this podcast actually has a much shorter format, so I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. It's, it's fine. Uh, we're only six minutes into a 15-minute interview. Uh, so for my first question, most American online poker players seem to come from similar enough backgrounds. They tend to be comfortable, white, suburban. You don't. Uh, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about your family and background and where you grew up? Yes, definitely not. Rich, white, or suburban. Basically grew up in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, um, uh, a small town about an hour south of Atlanta um, and didn't have a lot growing up um, unlike most of the people that I've met in poker and also um, didn't know much about poker growing up that wasn't a cultural thing for us like we didn't play poker um, at home with the family I, I, that's a story I've heard from a lot of my friends I didn't play my first hand of poker until I was already an, an adult um, so, and even then it was like five card draw. Like I hadn't heard of, uh, no living Oldham until moneymaker won the main event. So yeah, poker was not a uh, part of my, uh, upbringing at all. Uh, one, one thing that always impressed me about you is your ability to connect with a wide range of people. Um, even though I know you regard yourself as something of an introvert, but you seem to be able to connect with people from almost every possible background, nationality, and age. What do you put that down to? Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, that's an interesting question. I, I will say as far as poker, that's the common link that I have with majority of my friends now. So, and a lot of these guys are poker coaches um, from Tournament Poker Edge and um, Thinking Poker Podcast with um, Andrew. And so the the link 
we always have something to talk about, even though culturally growing up, we didn't have a lot of the same experiences. Poker, I, I love talking about poker strategy and studying poker, maybe even more than playing. And so that's something that I have in common with um, with these guys. And I kind of alluded to this earlier. I said I grew up poor. Um, one of my friends and um um, I'm assuming a friend of this podcast, um, Gareth Chandler, yeah. um, invited me to stay with him in the Dominican Republic um, a couple of years ago for the um, Punta Cana Poker Classic. And so Gareth is one of those guys that I would have never um, run into outside of poker. He's from Canada. And like I mentioned, I'm from Atlanta. And so we didn't have the same experiences. But on the other end of that spectrum, um, when we stayed there, there was a cleaning lady there in the Dominican Republic, a local, and I got along really well with her also, and she would wake up every morning, she comes, she's cleaning, she's singing, she's always happy, and she makes like 11 cents an hour. And so that's why I said earlier that I grew up poor in air quotes because like no American grows up poor compared to the average person in the Dominican Republic. And so even though this lady and I couldn't communicate well because she doesn't speak English, I don't speak, I don't speak Spanish, I was in some way able to get along and communicate with her um, and Gareth. So it's like... I don't know. Like, we didn't have poker in common. I guess her and I had poverty in common or just, like, I I was just blown away at how happy she was compared to some of these millionaire poker player friends of mine. And this lady makes 11 cents an hour. So, um, yeah, I, I, I agree that I'm able to uh, connect with a wide range of people, but other than poker, I don't. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it is always interesting to me because, like, I see a lot of your friends. I see them, and all their other friends are very similar. And then you're there. Yeah. <laughs> and then I see another group of people who are very different from the first group of people. And again, you're there. <laughs> I think you. I think it's. I think a lot of it is down to just you're such an interesting person. You're so unusual, and mm -hmm. at the same time, you're also very open to other people. You don't expect you know everybody to to be the same as you. Um, and you mentioned about the fact that you're really in, in, interested in poker, and that kind of ties into my next question, which which was when I made my first uh, World Series final table, you were definitely my most loyal railer. Um, and my rail actually was kind of a bit of United Colors of Benetton. Uh, it obviously included my closest Irish friends, but it also included you, a few of the young British online players, including uh, Timmy Davy, who was telling everybody on the rail that I was his dad and he wanted me to win because I'd buy him a car. <laughs> <laughs> Most poker players, it's fair to say, are begrudging railers, but you seem to get a genuine thrill from railing. What's it about the experience of watching me fold for hours that you liked? <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's study to me. Poker study is almost, if not more, fun to me than playing. And so... I talk about being a nit, but I've you know I was you know learn lessons from Dara. You're you're definitely one of the um, uh, one of my idols in terms of folding my way to second places. Like that's something I want to <laughs> uh, pick up on um, from watching you. And so I enjoy being able to help out the player by uh, watching the um, the thirty minute delay to relay hands and maybe physical reads and that sort of thing. Carlos, I mentioned at the top of the show that you were the poker pro who lives in his van. Uh, it was a voluntary decision that you made a while back to essentially become homeless. How has that been working out for you? I was having a conversation um, yesterday with Tommy Angelo, and I use this phrase. Like, I've made a lot of good decisions in my life. Moving into that van was by far the best decision I've ever made. Oh, wow. It was it's being the type of guy that likes... Um, a, to save money, and B, uh, adventure and flexibility. Like, nothing nothing else that I've done has allowed me the, the type of freedom that basically getting rid of 90% of my worldly possessions and just um, squeezing everything else I have into the van, um, that... I don't know. I can't. I can't put into words the type of freedom that 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 provided me. 
kind of goes back to what you mentioned about my um, upbringing, like not the, the one advantage to growing up poor is that, you know, from experience that you don't need a lot. And so um, there's a lot of people that would worry, oh, I don't have cable television or something like I can't have that in my van. But, you know, for the first half of my life, we didn't have cable television. Okay, but you do have Twitch in your van. So there are obviously some things you can't live without. The one thing I can't live without is internet. And I do I do have that. Uh, uh, basically, I just use my cell phone as a um, Wi-Fi hotspot. And so that's how I'm able to um, get an internet connection in my van to do the Twitch stream like you mentioned. Um, but yeah, I, to me, what I've learned over the course of this journey is the less things I have, the happier I am. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, Carlos, on that note, and what a lovely sentiment it is to end this on, I want to say on behalf of both Dara and I, thank you so much for joining us on The Chip Race. We really appreciate it. It's time for Ian Simpson with the news. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the most important part of the show. It's the news. We're here in Malta. Uh, we've just played the Deep Stack Open here in Malta, which saw 233 runners. No joy for myself, unfortunately. Mr. Lappin did manage to cash. Rauno managed to cash. And French ambassador Quentin Lecomte also managed a final table appearance, coming in sixth for 6,000 euros. The start of the tournament, however, was Denis Ainasto, who managed to top the 233-runner field and bag himself €20,500 for his efforts. How do you find the tournament, David? Yeah, great tourney. Uh, Alex Henry really puts on a great show for everybody um, at these DSOs. Really good structure, 50 minutes, blind levels, 50k stack. Yeah, congratulations to Dennis Inasta. Obviously, great result he beat. Uh, Alessandro Siena heads up. Uh, Alessandro completely crushed us all on the bubble. I was on his table. Uh, I think he went from about 1 million to 3 million while he just like destroyed us all through a like pretty painful two-hour bubble. I uh, also want to give a big shout-out on this one to my friend Jonathan Rabb. Jonathan, obviously, been a poker industry professional for many years. He is a, a, a top-drawer recreational player, and he made a really deep run coming fourth for 9K. So congrats to him. Uh, next mention in the news is that the Goliath is well underway in Coventry. Now, um, the, there are still day ones yet to be played. The organisers are expecting over 5,000 players to have attended this tournament. They've already beaten the guarantee. Last year, they got 5,232 players. It would be amazing to see if they could top that 5,200 players this year, and they think they might just be able to do it. Last year's winner, Bamshi Van Danapu, topped the 5,232-player field, uh, cashing for £62,750 for his efforts. So, good luck to all those playing that. Everyone who's made day two has a shot at a big, big prize pool. Well, I assume... Almost anyone who is uh, even like mildly interested in poker and lives within two hours of Coventry, which is pretty much everyone in Great Britain, yeah. uh, is, is at least throwing in five buy-ins for this one. <laughs> it's an incredible effort to get so many people uh, to actually visit Coventry, I think, yeah. because it's so grim. Uh, uh, you, you just look. You love being nice to the UK cities. Last week you were you were just in Manchester. Now you're just in Coventry. Well, they used to send people to Coventry as punishment. So when know. did that ever happen? You're oh, making shit up. No, I'm not. Oh I'm my not. gosh. What else happened this week? Um, this week we had the Poker Hall of Fame winners announced. David the Devilfish Elliot and Phil Ivy both made it into the Poker Hall of Fame. About time someone English got in there, I think. <laughs> yeah, look, uh, you know, David, obviously a controversial character uh, while he was still with us. Um, there's been a lot of lobbying for a lot of years now to, to get him in. Indeed. Uh, there was really only one spot up for grabs this year because Ivy had just turned 40, so he was a cert. He's a cert, yeah. Um, there's a lot of guys like David Chu. I know Max Pescatori was, was in the mix as well. Uh, those guys are also eligible then, of course, for next year. So, you know, we might see them join that elite club. But yeah, Devilfish, congratulations, obviously. Uh, posthumously uh, inducted um, he certainly uh, brought a lot of colour to the poker scene Indeed, probably did a lot for European poker on TV when he came about so, back in, um, the, in the late night poker days exactly So, and a uh, big shout out to uh, the Dustal Dawn staff uh, Simon Trumper and Cole for their lobbying to get him in uh, in 2016 they were all wearing uh, t-shirts with you know, Devilfish for the Hall of Fame and whatnot, and it uh, looks like it's paid off this year so excellent 
And we, uh, we're we obviously going on hiatus for a couple of weeks now. While we're gone, actually, there will be an event on the UK tour. The Unibet UK tour uh, is going to Nottingham, another one of my favourite Midland cities in England. <laughs> but uh, joking, so we're not going to be in Dust Till Dawn. I know that's the, the popular spot there in Nottingham. We'll actually be at the Alia Casino, which is much more central. Smaller casino, but uh, there'll be a couple of starting days, I think, uh, 25th and 26th of August. Yes, indeed. Uh, final day, the Sunday on the 27th. Uh, have you been there before? I've never been to the Alia. I've obviously been to Nottingham lots of times for the poker, but I've never been to the Alia. Uh, so yeah, between the 25th and the 27th of August, uh, online satellites running now on unibetpoker.com. Got to get the plug in there, right? Absolutely. Uh, £220 buy-in, 40k guaranteed, and there's a lot of added value in this, isn't there? Loads of added value. There's bounties on all the ambassadors, and I think there'll be a pretty full complement of ambassadors there. So. Yeah. Uh, there's actually two 3K European Open packages added in there, uh, 3K in value for the winner and for the deepest qualifying uh, guy online who gets a, who, who wins a seat through the client. And that could, of course, be the same person, in which case I'm sure second place will, will probably pick up that prize. Well, I don't know what they'll do then. Yeah, or maybe just give it to one of us. We're going, we're going anyway. I don't think they're going to give it to us. They love us, but they love we, us that We much. can bring a friend. They're not just going to give us three grand. We can bring a friend anyway, can't we? We can bring two friends. You don't have two friends. Oh, <laughs> and on that note, Ian, out of here. For our strategy section this week, uh, I thought it would be good to look at somebody who is uh, has become an overnight success in poker, probably the biggest name in poker over the last few weeks, John Hesp. Bit of a hero for everybody, 10 quid player from Hull who, who had it on his bucket list to go out and play the World Series of Poker main event and made it all the way to the final table. Now, he came into the final table second in chips, just behind Bloomstein, and those guys pretty much maintained the chip leads. They kind of went back and forth between them for the course of uh, day eight, which was the first day of the final table. Then suddenly there was the ICM hand from hell where Bloomstein opens aces I think in mid position and John Hesp pretty standard defends his big blind with ace 10. Dara can you take it from there? Yeah so they go two way to the flop and uh, the flop comes ace seven five rainbow Um, so obviously both players feel pretty good about this flop but they both check. Yeah, that seems reasonable. Bloomstein's obviously got the deck crippled in his eyes. There's only one ace left. Hesp happens to have it in this case, but he's probably thinking, oh, I'm not going to get too much action with top set, so may as well let him peel, let him have a free one and maybe he catches a piece. Yeah, top set's obviously a very good hand to check on this board because, it, like you said, there's only one ace left in the deck. There's no uh, obvious draws here. I mean, 8-6 and 6-4, but they're kind of unlikely. So there's not very much that can give you action here. So you might as well let one peel and, and either induce a bluff or uh, maybe Hesp will hit the turn. Uh, which is exactly what happens. Esp does hit the turn. He hits two pair on the turn when an, an, an offsuit 10 hits the turn. Um, he checks again and then Bloomstein bet 3 million. Hesp check raised to 7 million. Bloomstein then made it 17 million and Hesp moved all in. And that moving all in was for effectively about 90 million, I think. So it was a really big shove. Yeah, there was. Uh, it was for over half the chips in play. Um, so it's a massive shove. Afterwards, people said, you know, that th- this was basically a cooler uh, mm-hmm. top set against two pair. But um, that's people are probably tired of us banging on about ICM at the stage in the strategy section. But th- th- this is a huge ICM mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, even I mean, if you think about, you know, the board is now ace, ten, seven, five. Like when you shove all in, like what hand can you call? Can you get called by that's worse than ace, ten? There's not even too many worse two pairs because Bloomstein has opened from early position, so he may not be opening A7 and A5. So it's one of those situations where you're going to fold out every worse hand and get called by every better hand. The set's not going to fold and one pair is not going to call. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think as well as the ICM of the situation, you know, one and two in chips who are actually like quite considerable chip leaders, everyone else was way back from them, just going at it in a big spot where they both got equity is kind of crazy from both ends. Now, it's not crazy from the guy who has the nuts. He's playing it absolutely fine. But if you have anything less than nuts, you should be kind of treading a little bit carefully. I think it's reasonable that Hesp thought he had the best hand on the turn when he puts in the raise. But once the other raise comes in, I think it's a, it's a definite flat situation and then reassess River. Anything else seems to be a little bit, you know, I see him insane. Yeah, I think if Hespas had stopped after he got raised to 17 million and you know tried to think about what his opponent could actually have in this spot, there's there are no draws on the board. There's no flush draw there. Uh, there's no like 
straight draw that he's likely to have. It's unlikely he's got eight, nine suited, for example. So really, he he should have been asking himself a question like, well, what hand does he have? Yeah, and he doesn't have ace-king, I don't think, too often when he puts in the next raise. No, and, you know, Hesp got a lot of praise, and rightly so, for the way he conducted himself on the final table in terms of, like, he was very fired up, he was interacting with the crowd, he was celebrating all his wins. But the downside to that is that, like, you're not necessarily as focused when you're, when you're playing a hand. By contrast, the sort of online grinders who got there get criticised, also understandably, for being uh, very boring to watch. They're just sitting there <laughs> thing, very carefully focused. But I think almost any average online grinder wouldn't have got the have got the farm in uh, with this AS10 hand. They would have thought, well, you know, uh, this, it, it, it's, a, it's a pointless shove because it gets called by everything better and folds everything worse. So I guess the theme really is pot control. And, okay, he's out of position in the hand. It's harder to pot control out of position. But one way to pot control is to just go into check call mode. That's one way to do it. And when you're one and two in chips with big ICM implications, that's not necessarily a terrible line. In fact, game theory might suggest those kind of weaker passive lines is better in those spots. Yeah, both players have an incentive to keep the pot small. So when one player is prepared to put all the chips in or to make a big raise on the turn, there's a very strong pot possibility he has the nuts and it's very unlikely he's bluffing a lot of uh, recreational players i know asked me afterwards if, if i thought the hand was a cooler and, and the and the answer i gave is kind of yes and no it's obviously a cooler to have top two pair against top set against the only other player on the table who can damage you in terms of chips so in that sense it's a cooler but in another sense it's it's it's, it's not a cooler because i think Almost any professional player uh, sitting in Hep's seat would probably have lost 30 million chips, which is probably about the amount you're supposed to lose. So it's a cooler to lose the first 30 million, Hmm. but it's not a cooler to lose the next 60 million. Yeah, I agree with that. I think if if you have uh, 50 bigs in the hand, in fact, you might get cooler than that spot because, you know, with the stack sizes, once the raise goes in, it it does create a slightly different dynamic. But when you're 100 deep and and everyone else is sitting with 30 bigs, you really should be tiptoeing. Yeah, and I mean the pot was the pot was five million chips going into the turn, and somehow they got another hundred and seventy five million in. Yeah. Um, so you know the the it, it it just escalated wildly, and when that happens, it's almost always the case that one player has the nuts. Yeah. Now, obviously, in this spot, we're not going to be too critical of John. He's been a phenomenal character. He's been amazing for the game, and he, you know. He made himself two and a half million. We don't have to be too sad for him either. I think in this hand, he probably misplayed it, strictly speaking. But overall, I think it's fair to say it was a cold hand, but maybe not a cooler. Yeah. And to his credit, John came back really well. I think he, after the hand, he was down to seven of seven. So, you know, he could, he could very well have lost the head in Boston seventh. He ended up laddering all the way up to fourth place and winning the 2.6 million you mentioned. If we were to put a number on the mistake, maybe that mistake cost him three or four million in equity. But at least, <laughs> oh, God. At least he made the best of it afterwards. <laughs> three or four million. Oh, it's just a three or four million in equity mistake. Not so much. No, nothing you can, you know, lose sleep over. <laughs> We're joined now by the man of the moment, the man who up until two weeks ago had less than 2k in Hendon Mob Caches, all of which he got at his local £10 game in Napoleon's Casino and Restaurant in Hull. The man who has charmed his way into all our hearts on his way to coming fourth at the World Series of Poker main event for $2.6 million. The man with the flowery jacket, I am of course talking about John Hesp. John, thank you so much for joining us on the Chip Race. It's a huge treat to have you on so soon after the big day. Yeah, well, thank you for that, David. I, obviously, I did mention earlier that I would try and contact you, which I did, and um, now I'm a little bit less tired than I was before. I feel as if I'm up for a, an interview. That's great, yeah. I w- really appreciate it, John. How, how long are you back from Vegas? It's, it's, it's actually not that long, I don't think. Well, um, it was uh, um, a week ago today I actually arrived uh, back home. It's in fact about this time, around about 10 p.m. I arrived back from Vegas, which was a bit of a grueling flight, and considering I had to go via Frankfurt to get back to Manchester, but <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> um, we, we, we made it anyway, that's the main thing. That's good, yeah. Ironically, I came back through Manchester, <laughs> and I spent eight hours in Manchester airport uh, waiting for a one-hour flight to Dublin. Um, oh, my goodness, mate. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, you had a bit of an, uh, a long one then. Indeed, yeah. And then a few days later, I was actually in Manchester for a tournament. Um, so, uh, And somebody actually asked me at the table in Manchester, how long are you back from Vegas? And I was so tired, I couldn't remember. <laughs> I was like, I no. think it's two or three days, but I'm not sure. No, I, I understand where you're coming from. Especially when I was on the, um, you know, that World Series. I just, if you were to ask me specific days and things like that, I can't answer them because they just all rolled into one. Especially when we did sort of three solid days back to back, 12, 13 hour days uh, of poker. 
I think you guys will probably be aware that this year they changed the format a little bit and um, you know the November 9 was sort of rolled into July wasn't it? Yeah yeah I remember there was a lot of speculation before it started that that would uh, make it make it difficult for amateur players who are not used to sort of playing that much poker but also for older players so it's it's great to see someone like yourself actually go the whole way um, and, and and be there right till the end. Well, I did. I did survive it, Darren. I think um, you probably, you guys were probably watching it when it uh, took place. And I think it's fair to say the, um, you know, day one of the final table, the first three hands were um, quite exciting, weren't they? Yeah, I think David actually has some has some questions about about that. It was an amazing start um, to the to, to the final table, and I mean. You, you you basically dominated the final table in the sense of um, your personality, just how much you seem to be enjoying the event. Absolutely. Um, and when I say dominated, I, 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 probably a little bit um, less than that, but I was absolutely enjoying it. There was no question about that. And it was. I think that showed, showed through clearly on the, on the TV footage that aired. Absolutely. Well, look, John, one of the things I know our listeners are de- definitely keen on, on finding out about, I know it's something I'm dying to hear about because it was so unusual to see a British poker player go so deep, who I didn't already know. Like, we're such a kind of tightly knit community. You came out of nowhere. So I guess the question on everyone's lips maybe is, how did you get into poker? Well, I think it's fair to say if I originally, um, I've said to various news medias from different places, you know, from being a child, um, before we had... Uh, TV, we used to play cards as a family. My two sisters and parents would play things like whist and solo and other bits, um, yeah, things like that. Um, and you know, since since then, I've sort of always had an interest in cards. And I probably took up poker about 25 years ago. And I used to play at my local gentleman's club in Bridlington here in East Yorkshire, England. And I used to play seven card stud. And I think probably when um, Channel 4 over here started to broadcast late night poker, did I sort of get interested in, um, you know, Texas Hold'em. So it's fair to say that whilst we all know that, you know, poker hands have always remained the same in all different forms of the game, um, it didn't take too long to get used to playing Texas Hold'em. And originally, when I started playing it in Hull, um, you know, the um, Napoleons in Hull, it used to be sort of um, pot limits hold them. And then I think it gradually changed to no limit, which becomes, I think, more the international game as opposed to the pot limit version. And uh, so in fairness, I would say I've probably been playing Texas Hold'em for probably about 15 years and probably poker is in general about 25 years. Wow, yeah, that's that, that's a pretty wealth of experience. You you also mentioned in a number of your uh, interviews that you played the WSOP main event because it was on your bucket list. How long that's in right. advance did you decide you were going to play the main event this year? Well, it was probably only about, um, I think, uh, May. May was the time that I sort of mentioned it to my wife, and um, she was a bit shocked because I hadn't said anything to anybody before that. But... <laughs> But she did say, you know, if that's what I wanted to do, she would support me, even though I did, she didn't particularly want me to go away for two weeks. But um, that being said, it turned out to be three weeks that I was away at the end. And, um, <laughs> you guys know the rest. So, so in other words, it was about May this year that I, you know, sort of decided to go. And um, I asked a pal of mine in Bridlington if he fancied joining me, and he said he would. Now, I don't know whether you guys were out there yourselves, but... There was obviously over seven thousand two hundred entrants this year, so they had to they had to play three day ones. Yeah, there was there was um, the Saturday, Sunday, and the Monday, which were the three. Day, and we, myself and my pal, actually played um, our day one on the Saturday. But after we played day one and got through there, um, we obviously had a couple of three days free. So you know, between then and of course the the previous days, we just played a little bit of a small. Um, tournaments at uh, well at the Stratus, uh, but also at the Rio, Rio, and we went to the Venetian. Um, the Rio were playing these daily. Um, the daily deep stacks. I think there were two hundred and thirty-five dollar. Yeah, uh, the daily deep stacks. I think they call them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, we played. I think two or three of those, 
and neither of us really came anywhere significant in them but it was sort of good to get into some practice and get into the mood so to speak absolutely you're, you're obviously saving the run good for something more important um we alluded to it a little bit earlier on but you know it, it's obviously the most grueling tournament uh, in terms of the long days i think you play about 80 hours in total to to kind of get heads up uh, you pretty much did that um you always seem to be having fun at the table but at the end of a day like that you must have still been really exhausted uh, would you have preferred to have had the november 9 concept and had a few months off or did you prefer to just keep keep going and run with you know i guess the good fortune and the dynamics and the adrenaline that was probably still pumping through your veins well I'd, I'd, i've never experienced it before so i've never had, know what the november 9 was like but i think if i were to express an opinion uh, based on what I would think. I would think I prefer to do what I did and continue it right the way through. Even though it was grueling and, you know, um, you know, lots of hours of back-to-back poker, um, you know, to get it over in, if you like, within the certain period, I think it would be better. And I think it was also good, better probably for television audiences around the world because you didn't have to wait all that time to find out who'd won, basically. And um, no, I think I would favour the method they've gone for, even though there was a little bit of um, gruelling poker involved. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with that. I think it used, it used to kind of mess up the tournament that they got to a certain point and then they just stopped and we all came back in three or four months and, you know, it, 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 it didn't have the same flow to it. Um, uh, yeah. I remember when they introduced the concept of the November 9, the idea was that it would give players a few months to hype themselves up for the final table. But to be honest, I'm not sure it really worked as an experiment. No, well, the, other, the other thing is as well, um, in, Dara, in relation to that, it also gave, you know, the pros and those who were really into it, the opportunity to sort of um, view some of the sort of uh, footage that mm. we'd been run, you know, before that and get some sort of, um, feed feedback on how the players were actually carrying on. Now, to some extent, you know, people might always say, "Well, what's wrong with that?" But um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I wouldn't really have gone into it to that extent. I would have still played my the game I did anyway, irrespective. But what I'm actually saying is, they wouldn't have the opportunity to be able to look back at um, things that I was doing, particularly um, in in any detail i know they could obviously look back 30 minutes after the event and indeed that was a that was happening on the final table yeah. um i mean that uh, you could uh, clearly there, there was a lot a, a lot more sort of um intense interest in you know what whole what cards people were having in relation to the others than the, what was was with me i wasn't really bothered what they had i mean at the end of the day I was playing it largely for recreation, and um, it was quite financially beneficial, the outcome to me, as you know. Sure, yeah. Uh, so, like, did you do any uh, preparation for the final table? Because you had a few days off between, you know, when the final table was formed and when you actually played it out, or did you just chill for those days? No, I think realistically, by the final table, my, uh, my wife and um, two sons and daughter and uh, two daughters came over and joined me so we did actually spend just a little bit of time together not go, we didn't go anywhere in particular but we dined out and just had a little wander around some of the hotels you know the um Palagio and <laughs> caesar's palace and that was more or less it well john i'm itching to get to that final table obviously all the lights all the cameras the, the world of poker watching you that opening hand of the final table versus anton south where you 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 uh you called it three bet and then you check raised them on the flop it really demonstrated how, how you were going to proceed on this final table you're obviously a natural showman and it was brilliant for tv but at another level, I did think you might have been throwing down the gauntlet a bit. To what degree was this a power move against the, your foes at the table, or was it just purely you having fun? It was me having fun, but it's, <laughs> I think uh, King Nine were talking. Was it King Nine were talking? Yeah, King Nine against Ace Jack. Yeah, and uh, well, of course, I mean, you saw uh, the outcome of it. I, did, I didn't know Saud had Ace at all at the time, but uh, clearly... Um, <laughs> I, I was showboating a little bit to some extent, and <laughs> <laughs> it was brilliant, though. I was genuinely having so much fun, but just a few more, a few minutes before the start, um, Scott Brunstein um, 
turned to me and says, how are you going to play, how, how are you going to play the final table then, John? Are you going to carry on playing as you did in the others with, you know, the, with the fun? And I said, well, I'd like to think so, but, you know, it depends on the hands and how I feel at the time. I thought, well, I was Delta King 9 and I was in good position. I thought, well, let's have a go. Let's have some fun. I was second chip leader. I could afford to actually um, lose a few to Sahut. And, of course, I played the hand. It was certainly spectacular and <laughs> sure was I, I actually felt a little bit sorry for him when I threw my cards down afterwards because he didn't show his cards and I didn't learn until a long time afterwards what he had but I guess you know I saw the expression on his face when I threw them down <laughs> and showed King 9 it was probably like sticking a dagger in his in his stomach and twisting it but I didn't really do it for that purpose if you know what I mean I was I, I was genuinely intent on having some fun and also lightening up the, uh, the rest of the people on the table. I think I did that uh, with the exception of, you know, uh, Saud and, uh, <laughs> and, and the audience, you know, and the viewing people around the world. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, it certainly was incredible TV. And also trusting your instinct, I think, is, is, is huge in that spot. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of people don't have the courage of their convictions there. They might suspect that something is up, but they wouldn't actually be able to put the chips in. Well, I, th I think it's fair to say that, you know, when you say trust your instincts, I mean, I, I, I made numerous interviews with um, TV, media and radio, etc. whilst I was over there. And people were saying, you know, they were asking me, how was that? What did I attribute my success to and how did I play and how did I know what to do and when to do it well obviously I didn't get everything right as you know especially when the I walked into pocket aces against my ace 10 but that's um <laughs> that's what I don't particularly want to remember too much but you, you know you all saw that and it really was um a big hit but what I was really getting at, I think on the whole I I made a decision based on uh, a gut feeling and uh, and my head, you know, I'd worked out the combination of what would what might be out on there and used the um, both the gut feeling, the body language I was getting from people, and you know, a little bit of speech uh, play, which I think was discussed, and you know, to turn around and say I know exactly what I was going to do before I did this would be wrong because uh, I don't believe even the pros can answer that one. Yeah. What's, what I did say about, and I, you know, a lot of the players who were actually on these tables were, um, and I was talking to them quite, you know, openly about it, because even when you're on TV, you know, you, you're sort of mic'd up, but they turn the mic off when you're not really in the hand. So, you know, you can have conversations that are not, that are not being heard by you guys at home um, with different ones. And, you know, I used, I used to say things like, you know, why do you, you know, why do you take so long to fold a hand when you already know in the first ten seconds that you're going to fold? Why do you have to wait a minute or two to do it? <laughs> um, but you understand what I mean. I, I could, do. Yeah. I, can't, I can't get my head around that. It's just, um, it's something that certainly doesn't make for good TV. You know, when somebody sat you know, sort of pondering a decision when they've already made it three minutes earlier. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I agree completely. I think you were a complete breath of fresh air in, in in that respect. And you mentioned wanting to bring fun back to poker. To what degree do you mm -hmm. think your presence at the table made the professionals uh, lighten and loosen up? Oh, I think they did. I think the point was, I mean, I, I remember meeting up with Ben Lamb early in, uh, you know, early in the proceedings. And it was quite funny because I was still the same person in the earlier stages as I was at the final table. And I could really, you know, when you know, Ben would put a raise in and I'd cut this, I'm talking about pre-final table, this probably several days before. I mean, when, probably when there was still the high hundreds. Um, you know, he would put a raise in and I'd come over the top of him and things like that. And then, um, you know, it would fold and I would show, uh, show a hand which would probably a bluff or something like that. And say, he says, I can't figure you out, man. I can't figure you out. <laughs> well, <laughs> I said, and I said, good. I said, that's exactly how it's supposed to be, Ben. No, I don't <laughs> And it, <laughs> the first person to say that because um, I was actually playing completely unorthodox poker. And um, I was playing it what I called the John Hesp way and having fun at the same time. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that, that really came across. And I think you definitely gave the professionals a lot more trouble than, than you know, somebody who was playing a game more that, they were, that they'd be more familiar with. Um, that, I think that really came across. Well, I think this is what I tended to find when other people were sort of asking me these questions. And, you know, you probably saw Cara Scott and others interviewing me um, on you know, for the TV, yeah. and they say, you know, have you ever had, have you had, ever had, ever read any poker books? I said, never read one in my life. Have you, have you, <laughs> have you had, ever had any professional poker schooling? Never. And of course, and it, all these sort of things, and they were just completely to say that someone who has had, you know, no professional training and no history of any sort of great wins in the past. To get to that stage or to final table and certainly finish fourth, it was virtually unheard of from um, a nobody. I think what made it such an incredible story was that you were like l- literally the archetypal recreational player, but also then when you got there, you actually continued playing the same way that you had, and you had you still you still had fun. You, you you basically didn't freeze on the big occasion, which I think is always the fear you have when like if a recreational player somehow gets into that situation that they'll they'll let the occasion get to them. But it was clear that that didn't happen with you at all. Um, like as you went through the tournament, did you feel nervous or did you just enjoy the whole experience? No, no. I, like I said, I never really felt any nerves at all going through because it was just so much fun and uh, pleasure. And the fact that you know, the fact that I was having fun and lightening the mood of some of these really solemn and I'm calling the phrase poker phrase people, people. <laughs> not, just, not just professionals, but also amateurs who you know had this. You know, they put their sunglasses on and then they put their hoodies up and they put their um, head and they put their headphones on and all this sort of thing. Well. You know, I sort of chiseled my way through that sort of thing. And, um, you know, what initially was, you know, sort of completely blank face, he started to smile. And usually by uh, after an hour or so, they were probably laughing and smiling. And I hope they got something out of it besides me. Yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> I think it's one of those things that, like, until you're tested, you really, you, you really don't know how you're going to do under pressure. Uh, like, are there other... Uh, activities that you did before where sort of that competitive edge was was tested well no not really i mean as, 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 i mean I, I am actually my i am a self-employed businessman who uh built up my own caravan sales business in bridlington over 30 years so i have actually been used to sort of dealing negotiations and um you know dealing so from that perspective i wasn't um you know without experience um, communicating with all sorts of different people and I think to some extent that does help in the game of poker um, I will say that you know my own personal demeanor is one of certain uh, certainly a social person who you know likes to interact with other people and um, have some fun but in in the case of a lot of these younger guys and there were obviously a, a very large number of young people in it they probably spent many hours, obviously, in the game, you know, behind a computer screen playing online. And um, I think to some extent, you know, in doing so, they don't get, they don't develop the same social skills. That sure. That's definitely people, true. And I'm, not, I'm not just talking about playing online. I'm talking about any sort of, you know, uh, computer games, whether it be Grand Theft Auto or these combat games that they play. You know, kids that spend sort of hours and hours and hours behind a computer screen do not get to develop what I call proper life and social skills. So when they get face to face with uh, real people, some of them struggle to understand how to actually connect, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And, and I think quite a lot of the people there were in that sort of zone. Until I arrived, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, you, you were a real breath of fresh air on that front. Um, and what, like, what was great was too that like, you know, that that you were the recreational player who came through because your personality was perfectly suited to the occasion. Um, you really got across that sense of fun. Um, now, now that you've had the taste of of a big final table, do you, do you think you'll play more big poker tournaments, or is that just an item ticked off the bucket list now? Well, this 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 is something that really I have to sort of. I've said quite openly to everybody that I am not going to become professional, uh, and I, I don't want to be professional because I don't think I'll enjoy the game in the same way as I did there. Uh, I'd like to think I will be able to recreate the fun and um, experience I had 
over there. But, you know, you, you never really know until you're in the moment. Uh, if I'd come in the top thousand, you know, cashed, I would have been more than that. In fact, that was my dream, just to be able to play in it and get in the top thousand. Get um, $15,000, pay my uh, entry fee and the expenses as well. Everything else was just a bonus. $2.6 million was just beyond my wildest dreams. But what I was going to say as well as where I'm coming on to, um, my, and I, I don't wish to sound big-headed in any way when I say this, but you know, despite the fact that I only came forth, I do think that there was more media interest in me than there was some of the people, that, well, the guys that um, you know sort of came above me. And I think that's probably because of the story that's behind it more than anything else. Yeah, to be, I think that's undeniable. Um, I mean, you were the person that everybody was talking about at the, at the next tournament that I went to. Um, and it's like, in a sense, it's unfair when somebody wins and people just kind of forget about him because he's very similar to the, you know, the previous winners and he's just one of a bunch of a thousand young guys that, that could that could have won the tournament. But you, you, you completely broke the mould and also just... Um, you you know you brought so much entertainment beyond merely being on the final table um and i think you also like made the final table more fun for everybody else like like you said you it, it did seem like the, the pros lightened up the, the the interaction between the pros on this final table was much uh, more relaxed and more fun than on previous final tables and Indeed. i think that was that, that was basically down to you yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree with that as well. And actually, I wanted to ask you, John, as well, if if I could, uh, I can only imagine you maybe being inundated with offers now. You, you say you only want to play recreationally a few times a year, perhaps that would more fit with your life and your business and whatnot. But they must be all knocking your door down at the moment. Like we, you can't believe the lengths we went to just to be able to find your phone number. Um, the thing is, my, my, I've got my iPad going and battery's just about running out, so I'm trying to think that I get my phone going. But and it, it, listen, it, you might have two or three minutes left, gents, so I'm, uh, I'm going to have to escape it short. <laughs> I love it. Okay, we're on the battery race here. I've got lots of offers to sort of going to different places around America and opening, sort of, and playing charity events and things like that. But I think probably one of the biggest thing is I've had a couple of people wanting to do movies, um, and there's one relatively big company. I won't mention it at the moment because there's a couple involved. Sure. They want to do a movie on my story, which is wow. quite remarkable. I mean, when you think of a, a regular guy from a small town in uh, Yorkshire, England, you know, going through to Vegas and to play a game of poker in, in, on his bucket list, I never, in my wildest dreams, thought that anybody would be interested in that. But I can see, I can see Tom Hanks in the role right now. <laughs> well, I, I, I said, you know, what about George Clooney? Don't you think George oh, that's, Clooney? Yeah, that's much better, actually. He, he, he could probably pull off your hat as well. I'm sure. But no, seriously, it's just been an absolute dream. Uh, I've lived the dream. And there are still people around the world all wanting a piece of me in some form or another. So um, I want to try and oblige if I can. And where, whilst I said I'm not going to play go professional, I would probably be happy to maybe do six to nine sort of appearances or events a year in a amateur capacity and that being said i don't really want to do any more than that well speaking from two people for two people who uh, certainly wanted a piece of you as well john uh, we're really appreciative that you, you gave us your time i was just wondering about that bucket list of yours and and perhaps there's something else on it maybe i, I don't know winning wimbledon or um... <laughs> no i think the next one no the next one i've said is on um on tape as well was to try and bring a big poker event to um, Bridlington which is a small yeah, coastal town in, in Yorkshire great idea and I'd, uh, I'd like to bring some of my success if I could to the townsfolk who have suffered badly with the recession and the downturn in tourist traffic to the region so if I could do that I would like that you know I'd like to think I could do that in the town so that's probably the next item I can say it's on my bucket list so there you are. Yeah. Will, that, will that do, gentlemen? That's that's wonderful, John. Thank you very much. You, you have my contact details one way or another, and uh, if ever you want to talk to me again, you can always come to, through to, to me in this this way. Brilliant. Thanks very much, John. We really appreciate this, and I know we've kept you longer than we said we would, and we've almost killed your battery. Okay. <laughs>
<laughs> it's been an absolute treat to talk to you tonight. Um, and on behalf of Darren I for the Chip Race, thank you so much, John Hesp. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thanks, John. We'll stay in touch. All the best. Playing us out tonight in honour of the man of the moment, John Hesp, is one of the biggest musicians to ever come out of the great city of Hull. With weapon of choice, this is Fatboy Slim. <laughs> Carlos and John we're on hiatus now for the month of August but we will be back to you for the conclusion of season 3 in September when the Unibet team will be stateside to host a huge tournament in the entertainment capital of the world until then from Dara Ian and myself good night and good luck (laughs) 